some announcements before we get rolling this morning. Um, love to hear from you. Prayer requests, um, questions about Restore, song requests. Like if you really like T-Rains and you want to hear that again, you can put that on your connection card. The best way to do that is through our app. Uh, you can download the Restore Church app by searching We Are Restore on the App Store or We Are Restore eChurch on your Android device. And you can download the app. You can listen to sermons. You can fill out a connection card on there. Uh, we would love to connect with you in that way. You can also give through the app. And we have something special going on at the beginning of the first quarter of this year. Uh, there's a private donor that's made a, a big offer to restore in regards to matching funds. So I'm going to read this verbatim so I don't mess this up. Um, this anonymous donor, for every new and increased dollar in monthly giving will match that in April and again in May, up to $10,000. So, for example, if you increase your giving by $50 per month, uh, Restore will receive an additional $50 each in April and in May. If you initiate a $500 a month recurring gift, RC will receive an additional $1,500 in April, $500 in May. So, if it's recurring and if it's new, that's what will be matched. So, uh, we hope you will consider that. Um, we're a nonprofit, uh, small church. We, we kind of constantly live on the razor-thin edge of financial sustainability. So if you believe in what God is doing in our church, we just humbly ask that you would consider supporting us financially or increasing your financial giving if that's something you've been doing. Uh, some exciting stuff coming up. Today, we have a brainstorming lunch in the living room right after our worship gathering. So from like 11.30 a.m. to 1 p.m., uh, we're going to have food, we're going to have drinks, and we're going to have brainstorming uh, of the dreaming nature. So our church communities have the living room space for uh, going on five years. Our, our lease is up next year. Some really special uh, happenings have occurred in there, but we are kind of out of room in, in a lot of different ways. And we're thinking about, okay, what's the next five or ten years of Restore look like? What, what's God leading us to? How has he worked over the last eight years that we've been a church community, what do we dream about him doing in the future? And we want to do some communal dreaming. So if you'd like to be a part of that, it doesn't matter if this is your first Sunday or your 800th Sunday. I don't think we've had 800 Sundays. It's less than that, but you get the point. Join us for free food and discussion, and we're going to do that today. We'll do another one. If you can't make it today, we're going to do another one in April or May, and then maybe even a third one in the summertime, because so, we want as many people to contribute uh, to that as possible. And if you're an introvert and you just want free food, you can come too, and maybe you'll throw out like one sentence and it'll be gold because you've thought about it for an hour and you've figured out the perfect way to say it. Other stuff coming up. We're getting ready to start Lent. So Ian's preaching today on the last Sunday of Epiphany. The next season on the church calendar is Lent, which is the season where uh, we kind of embrace the darkness of the death of Jesus Christ. Like We, we kind of walk the path with him. But now we're living in the time where the resurrection has happened. So even as we walk with him spiritually and emotionally through the dark season of Lent, we have the light at the end of the tunnel. And one thing that we've never really done at Restore is talk about the systemic darkness over and over and over again. We've hit it from time to time with examples or current events. But we're going to do a series in Lent called Power Structures, and we're going to highlight some of the darkest power structures that exist in our world. So stuff like sexism and patriarchy, racism. Um, March 8th, uh, I, I want to highlight that specific Sunday. My friend Brian Thompson, 
who's planting a church in Largo. He's going to preach on racism, and it, systemic racism is something that he has experienced himself and also has a deep passion for, to the point of he's starting a ministry in PG County specifically to combat systemic racism in the creative world. So Brian's kind of claim to fame, and it's a pretty big one. He's the first and only African-American to design from top to bottom U.S. currency. So if you've seen a $100 bill, Brian made that. Like, he designed it from top to bottom. He's going to come preach on March 8th. I'm really excited to have him. We have another guest preacher on March 22nd who's going to be speaking on classism and its effects on generosity. So we're really, um, if you're looking for, like, a happy Lent season, this isn't going to be it. But the good thing is there is a gospel alternative to every one of these. Like, Christ is actively dismantling these, and we get to participate in that, and we're going to highlight the good news behind the darkness that we all see or experience, or maybe we haven't sensed it yet, but we're going to highlight it over the coming six weeks. So I'm really excited about that. Um, next Sunday, um, many of you know Phil and Amy Dittmer. Phil is going to be leading worship for us next Sunday. It'll be his last Sunday leading worship at Restore, and we're really excited to have him leading us one last time before they move. So join us for that, too. So just don't miss the next six weeks is what I'm saying, which you've if you've been to a church, you've probably like, yeah, I've heard that before from a pastor. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited for the next six weeks. I'm also excited for Ian. He's going to preach today on the last Sunday of Epiphany. So give it up for him. It's really hard to get up here. Yeah, I did not trip. Um, good morning, Restore. Um, good morning. Um, for those of you that are new or have not been in a while, you may be asking why are they letting lumberjacks preach now? Um, just kind of how it happened. Um, my name is Ian. I am the student ministry director here at Restore. I work with young people. Um, I eat a lot of pizza, go to Dave and Buster's. I was called to it. Um, anyways, so a low key known fact about me, I'm actually, those of you that know me really, really well know this, um, cause it's kind of died down, um, this particular fandom of mine. I'm an evangelist, so anything I'm a fan of, I go all in. And uh, for those of you that know me, I'm a huge Batman fan. Um, I own all the movies. I own many graphic novels. My favorite graphic novels are the Jeff Loeb, Tim Sale trilogy, uh, Long Halloween, Haunted Night, Dark Victory. Um, it really all started in 1992 um, when I was in my living room in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, Zach can go and throw up the picture. Um, I saw Batman the Animated Series for the first time. And I was gone. I loved it. I was obsessed. Um, uh, my dad still coaches basketball, but even at that point when I was four or five years old, he was coaching basketball. JV Varsity um, High School, I, it was, you know, if you're at a game, watching my dad coach or watching the girls play, you see Tom Howard there screaming and yelling at the refs. You have the rest of his players, and then you have a four-year-old dressed as Batman at the end of the bench. <laughs> And uh, pretty sure I th thought I was the real manifestation of the Dark Knight, but of course I was not. So the summer of 2005 rolls around, and I'm a junior in high school, and uh, had, in, had at that point, you know, I know you movie nerds, we can talk about this, but we had endured a few bad Batman movies. And uh, that spring of 2005, I remember going to this, uh, the Star John R Theater in Detroit, Michigan, and seeing Batman Begins for the first time. And my life was changed. And ironically, another Christopher Nolan movie, so... That's turns out that's all I preach on. Um, so I saw Batman Begins for the first time. 
this was the Batman that I had grown up loving. This was everything that he was supposed to be. Um, he was scary, but he fought for justice. Uh, he went a little crazy sometimes, but eventually got back on the road uh, that he was supposed to be on. So he kind of figured it out, and it was all, I was like, wow, this is incredible. My 17, 18-year-old self was obsessed. Um, for those of you that have seen the movie, and maybe for those that have not, I just love spoiling movies in my sermons too. So if you want to hear me preach and better ask what movie I'm going to spoil. Um, at the end of the movie, Commissioner Gordon and Batman are on top of the roof, and uh, Gordon and Batman are talking, and of course, Gordon's telling him about the crime escalation in the city, and then uh, he flips over evidence, and it's a Joker card. And so, my again, my 18-year-old self is like, the Joker, this is incredible! And I was so hyped, because obviously I knew where it was going to go. And so... Uh, the winter, and obviously this led up to the Dark Knight in 2008. So I was, the fall, winter, and spring leading up to the Dark Knight, I was watching trailers on repeat for 24 hours. I couldn't wait to see the movie. I was obsessed. I wanted to know everything I could from that two and a half minute trailer. And my family still makes fun of me for it to this day. And I just kind of say, hey, I was a 21-year-old nerd. Um, now I'm just a 32-year-old nerd that's kind of learned to deal with it. Um, but in this trailer for The Dark Knight, there's an iconic scene, and those that have seen the movie probably will know the one that I'm talking about, where Heath Ledger's Joker is driving the semi-trailer through the streets of downtown Gotham, and Batman's flying on his motorcycle at him, and they do this little, you know, tangle, whatever, and the, the trailer jackknifes. It flips over. And again, as a fan, I'm seeing this in the trailer, like, jaws on the floor, I can't wait. And this has to be the end of the movie. This is the final confrontation, right? This is so epic in every way. Joker on one hand, Batman at the other, and they fly towards each other, and this trailer flips, and then they fight. Like, this has got to be the final confrontation, right? And I, this is what I'm pulling from the trailer. I, of course, then the movie comes out, and that's smack dab in the middle of the movie. And I was, okay. That's not what I was anticipating, but obviously it was a key part of the movie, and, you know, keys on several plots. So, but the trailer wasn't a crystal clear picture of what was in the movie. Yeah, it told me what was going to be in the movie. It told me how the look and the feel and the, the characters might be a little bit like. But for the most part, it was a snapshot out of context. It did not give me the full picture like the full movie would. So trailers, keying on trailers, that's just an example. But the trailers give you the essence of the movie. The look, the feel, the, uh, the pieces, the qualities of the movie. Is it a comedy? Is it an action movie? Thriller, horror, documentary? Who's in it? What's the music like? But it doesn't give you the full crystal clear picture of the movie, of what the movie plot characters are like. So today we're going to focus on a couple Old Testament stories, um, which you could see the trailer, which you could see as the trailer for the New Testament, showing you a flash, uh, essentially a flash forward to what we're going to see in the New Testament. As Aaron mentioned, we're finishing up our series entitled Epiphany, uh, in which we celebrate the revelation of Jesus to the Magi and God's manifestation to the Gentiles, or non-Jewish folk. So I was thinking about this in preparation, um, the concept of epiphany, uh, which the scripture, in scripture, the Greek word is epiphania, which actually means the appearance or fitting manifestation. And I wanted to dig a little bit deeper, so then I looked up the word manifestation. I looked up the definition of a definition, inception. And then um, manifestation means an action, event, or object that clearly shows or embodies something. So if Jesus is the manifestation of God the Father, this means that what we see, hear, and learn about Jesus is true of God the Father. Then this got me thinking about where else in Scripture do we see God manifested, showing up, or embodied? 
today, again, I want to look at two Old Testament stories and dissect the manifestations of God and find a couple of takeaways. Um, these two Old Testament stories are going to give us God's essence, qualities about him, show us what he's about, but the picture we get is incomplete. We don't have the full movie yet. A little Bible trivia for you nerds out there. I actually don't think I knew this, and I would consider myself a minimal Bible nerd. Um, who, anybody know the first person to see or, and name God in Scripture? Well, it was actually Hagar. In Genesis 16, we learn about Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian maid. God had promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation and that his descendants would outnumber the stars. Well, as we all do as human beings, uh, we get a little impatient sometimes. And Abraham and Sarah took things into their own hands. And Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to get the ball moving. That's what we'll call it. Uh, Things work out and Hagar gets pregnant. Meanwhile, Sarah starts to feel some bitterness and resentment towards Hagar. And eventually it gets so bad that she has to flee. She has to leave. On her journey near a spring, Hagar is met by the angel of the Lord. And just a quick aside, this is not related to the core of my sermon, but quick aside, uh, doing some research on this, many scholars believe that when you actually see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's actually referring to the pre-incarnate presence of Jesus. So that's, I thought that was very interesting and kind of something to consider moving forward every time you read the angel of the Lord said, uh, kind of puts it in a different light. But anyways, back to our trailer. God tells Hagar to go back to Abraham and Sarah to go back to this difficult situation, which actually kind of seems counterintuitive. And then he blesses her. He tells her to name her baby Ishmael, which means God listens. And that he will bless her with a large family with many descendants. Hagar then gives God the name Elroi, or the God who sees me. So in this story, we learn that God listens and that he sees. Hagar feels seen and feels known, but only in a brief interaction with God. Later, we're going to talk a little bit more about how God or how about how Jesus makes this quality of God more complete. There are a handful of other times the angel of the Lord, like I said, kind of the pre-incarnate presence of Jesus, appears to people in the Old Testament. Jacob fights with God and is blessed by him. Gideon is encouraged by God, and Samson's parents are given plans for the liberation of the nation of Israel. All trailers and glimpses of God's character, protecting, good, comforting, directing, challenging, and inviting. All these things we see more perfectly and more clearly in Jesus. My favorite Old Testament story, oh, got real close to the mic. Favorite Old Testament story is someone of uh, someone's glimpse of God is Moses and his encounter with their burning bush. So um, buckle up. I'm going to read a chapter and some change of Exodus. Uh, but for you guys, I brought out the message. So thought I'd spice it up a little bit. Uh, this is, if you want to follow along in the Bibles in your, in your seats, uh, it's Exodus 3. Again, it won't exactly be the same, but the story is the same. Moses was shepherding the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the west end of the wilderness and came to the mountain of God, Horeb. The angel of God, triggered, appeared to him in flames of fire blazing out of the middle of a bush. He looked. The bush was blazing away, but it didn't burn up. Moses said, what's going on here? I can't believe this. Amazing. Why doesn't the bush burn up? God saw that he had stopped to look. God called him out, called out from, to him from the bush. Moses. Moses. He said, yes, I'm right here. Sorry. They let me back up here again, which was a huge mistake after crying last week. Um, God said, don't come any closer. Remove your sandals from your feet. You're standing on holy ground. Then he said, I'm the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Moses hid his face, afraid to look at God. God said, I've taken a good long look at the affliction of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries for deliverance from their slave masters. I know all about their pain, and now I have come down to help them, pry them loose from the grip of Egypt, get them out of that country, and bring them to a good land with wide open spaces, a land lush with milk and honey, the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. The Israelite cry for help has come to me, and I've seen for myself how cruelly they're being treated by the Egyptians. It's time for you to go back. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the people of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses answered God, but why me? What makes you think I could ever go to Pharaoh and lead the children of Israel out of Egypt? I'll be with you, God said, and this will be the proof that I am the one you, who sent you. When, you have my people, when you've brought my people out of Egypt, you will worship God right here at this very mountain. Then Moses said to God, suppose I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your fathers sent me to you. They ask me, what is his name? What do I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Tell the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. God continued with Moses, this is what you're to say to the Israelites. God, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent me to you. This has always been my name and how I will always be known. Now be on your way, gather the leaders of Israel, tell them God, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, really had to repeat that for Moses, appeared to me saying, I've looked into what's being done to you in Egypt, and I've determined to get you out of the affliction of Egypt and take you to the land of Canaanite, land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, a land brimming over with milk and honey. Believe me, they will listen to you. Then you and the leaders of Israel will go to the king of Egypt and say, God, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness where we will worship God, our God. I know the king of Egypt won't let you go unless forced to. I'll intervene and hit Egypt where it hurts. Oh, my miracles will send them reeling, after which they'll be glad to send you off. I'll see to it that this people get a hearty send-off by the Egyptians. When you leave, you won't leave empty-handed. Each woman will ask her neighbor for, and any guest in her house for objects of silver and gold, for jewelry and extra clothes. You'll put them on your sons and daughters. Oh, you'll clean the Egyptians out. Moses objected. They won't trust me. They won't listen to a word I say. They're going to say, God, appear to him? Hardly. So God said, what's in your hand? A staff. Throw it on the ground. He threw it, and it became a snake. Moses jumped back fast. God said to Moses, reach out and grab it by the tail. He reached out and grabbed it and was holding his staff again. So they, that's so they trust the God appeared to you, the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God then said, put your hand inside your shirt. He slipped his hand under his shirt and took it out. His hand turned leprous like snow. He said, put your hand back under your shirt. He did it and took it back out, and it was as healthy as before. So if they don't trust you and aren't convinced by the first sign, the second sign should do it. But if it doesn't, even after these two signs, they don't trust you and listen to your message. Take some water out of the Nile, pour it on dry ground. The Nile water that you pour out will turn to blood when it hits the ground. Moses raised yet another objection to God. Master, please, I don't talk well. I've never been good with words, neither before nor after you spoke to me. I stutter. I stammer. God said, and who do you think made the human mouth? Who makes some mute, some deaf, some slighted, and some blind? Isn't it I, God? So get going. I'll be right there with you, with your mouth. I'll be right there to teach you what to say. He said, oh, master, please send somebody else. God got angry with Moses. Don't you have a brother, Aaron the Levite? He's good with words. I know he is. He speaks very well. In fact, at this very moment, he's on his way to meet you. When he sees you, he's going to be glad. You'll speak to him and tell him what to say. I'll be right there with you as you speak with him as he speaks. 
teaching you step by step. He will speak to you, or he will speak to the people for you. He'll act as your mouth, but you'll decide what comes out of it. Now take this staff in your hand, and you'll use it to do signs. Everybody still with me? I was long, I'm sorry. So a couple things. Obviously, the story speaks to me, as you could tell. I actually, that was probably one of my best read-throughs ever. I really held it together. Um, that story really speaks to me for a number of reasons. Um, hearing a calling on your life, feeling inadequate, avoiding running from that calling. But really, when I was preparing for this, actually, something totally different stuck out to me. And it was interesting after reading the story of Hagar that it popped to me. In verses 7 and 8 in chapter 3, God said, I've taken a good, long look at the affliction of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries for deliverance from their slave masters. I know all about their pain. And now I have come down to help them, pry them loose from the grip of Egypt, get them out of that country and bring them into a good land with wide open spaces, a land lush with milk and honey, the land of the Canaanite, Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusite. 9 and 10, the Israelite cry for help has come to me, and I've seen for myself now how cruelly they're being treated by the Egyptians. It's time for you to go back. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the people of Israel, to, out of Egypt. We see more of the same. God hears and he sees. He has compassion. He has patience. He gives justice. All things we see more completely in the person of Jesus. Once we have the picture of Jesus in the New Testament, we actually no longer need the angel of the Lord in the New Testament. We've stopped getting trailers. The full movie has now arrived. God revealed and manifested himself, or by definition, clearly showed and embodied himself in the human being of Jesus of Nazareth. I'll never forget seeing The Dark Knight at midnight on July 18th, 2008. I went with a couple friends from high school. Um, I had watched all the trailers and previews a zillion times, knew them like the back of my hand, all two and a half minutes of each of them. Because because of those glimpses and revelations, I couldn't wait for this film, and neither could the packed theater that I was sitting in. There wasn't an empty seat, and you could have heard a pin drop when the lights went low and you hear the Hans Zimmer music come on. You just knew you were in for something incredible. We were hanging on every word, every scene, and every twist. Because of the prophecies, the law, stories, and visions of the Old Testament, people were fascinated, drawn to, and hanging on Jesus' words. The people of Israel had and knew their trailers. They now had the perfect seat to the entire movie. Jesus came as the perfect revelation and manifestation of God the Father. John 1.8 says, we all live, again, this is message, so follow with me. We all live off his generous bounty, gift after gift after gift. We got the basics from Moses, and then this exuberant giving and receiving, this endless knowing and understanding, all of this came through Jesus the Messiah. No one has ever seen God, not so much a glimpse. This is a -a one-of-a-kind expression who exists at the very heart of the Father and made him plain as day. Uh, Huge Twitter guy, to quote a recent tweet from Brian Zond, the Old Testament tells of people seeing God, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, etc. But John says no one has ever seen God. Again, referencing John 1.8. John insists that whatever encounters people had with the divine in past times, they pale in significance to the revelation of the God seen in Christ. When we read the Gospels, we can know and have full assurance that not only have we seen God, but we know his heart too. As we wrap up, I want to invite you to close your eyes with me. Picture God. What does he look like to you? How does he act towards you? How does he feel about you?
does the picture you have of God line up with the picture of Jesus? Do you feel maybe feel judged by God sometimes? Because the Jesus that I know and read about dined with sinners and tax collectors. Do you sometimes feel betrayed by God? Because the Jesus I read about was faithful to the end. Do you feel distant from God? Because Jesus doesn't turn away anybody. Do you feel like maybe sometimes you don't measure up? You don't act or talk or think the right way. Jesus that I read about doesn't ask you to clean up your life first. He just invites you to follow him. In fact, listen to these words of Jesus as he preached to the towns in Galilee. These are found in Matthew 11. Again, this is the message. Imagine looking into his eyes and hearing him say, Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting uh, Ill on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Let's pray.